The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So these um, last several weeks in September, I've been reflecting on the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, and many of you know this was a central theme the Buddha kept coming back to. There's something about you and me and all beings. There's something about when I willingly acknowledge and open and in a way feel into the reality of change, the reality of uncertainty, the reality that everything that's moving in my life is not governable. I can't, I'm not in control of what's coming and going, both even in terms of my own feelings and thoughts and bodily sensations, but for sure in terms of what's happening around me. This should be obvious, right, to all of us. And then from a more ordinary point of view, what in Buddhism we call the self-centered or self-view, that ungovernableness, unreliable uncertainty that exists as a kind of threat to me because this, from this egoic position, I want certainty. I want this ground that I can count on. I want to be somebody. I want my opinion or my ideas about things to be set so I can count on them. I can count on being right about some something. But we don't find that kind of certainty or that kind of ground that we can depend on. And so we often spend much of our life either in denial or struggling to get that kind of ground, that kind of certainty in our relationships, in terms of the health of our body, in terms of like being right about stuff. In a sense, the ego feels desperate. I need certainty. Where can I get it? And therefore, so much of our suffering is this pursuit of certainty. And I might have mentioned this last week, but the problem that we human beings face isn't that everything is uncertain and unreliable and impermanent. The cause of suffering, the cause of this inner anxiety is wanting or expecting things to be certain, to be permanent, to be reliable when they're not. So this is our exploration, you know, as our, as we've been discussing this theme of impermanence and hopefully throughout our weeks, you know, just looking at change as an ordinary, unavoidable truth of our experience. And then in little ways, in places that are relatively safe, relaxing with change and relaxing with the exposure we have to things being uncertain and unreliable. It's like, you know, I mentioned last week this, um, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which, um, you know, was probably impactful for a lot of us. And even though the person, uh, Ruth, was quite old and had had uh, a lot of cancer over the last decade or two of her life. Um, 
there was this expectation or this desire that she not die for some of us. So it's just interesting when something happens, a disappointment arises, some circumstance, some situation shows up in our life. It's so uh, interesting how easy it is for my mind, our minds, to see this as like, oh no, no, this shouldn't happen. This disappointment shouldn't be arising. This change is not okay. And then when, you know, along the edges where it's not totally overwhelming, we can practice. Okay, there is that impulse, there is that conditioned response, this is not okay, but I have some space around that, some curiosity. Maybe it is okay. And that means I have to be willing to feel that exposure like, oh, that's something like this can happen. So can I, in a sense, can we relax in to a world where something like this can happen? <laughs> when I was coming to Common Ground this morning to give this talk, there's a little mailbox, some of you know, next to the front door where we keep flyers. And I was just going to look to see if there are any flyers left in there. And I opened it up and I, and I hit my head. There's a lantern right next to the front door, beautiful lantern, and it's got some sharp edges, and I hit right on my head. And it's just so interesting. I didn't think I would, you know, in those moments right before walking in the in the building, I didn't think I'd have to deal with a lot of physical pain. <laughs> but there it was. And then it's like, okay, so there is this exposure to bodily harm. I mean, nothing terrible happened to me, except painful sensations. But it's a perfect example of something that's workable. Like I wasn't expecting that to happen. And all of a sudden, you know, I've got this mark on my forehead. And for a couple minutes at least, there was some pretty sharp pain there. And it was just interesting to notice my practice kicking in. Okay, sometimes it's like this. Not that my mind actually said those words but that was the wisdom showed up as that, yeah, sometimes you bang your head. Sometimes it feels really painful for a while. And then it changes. And lo and behold, it did. It really hurt for a while. And then after a few minutes, it really didn't hurt. It was gone. And this is the world we can train ourselves to live in. You might be having a sit, a painful memory might arise. It might initially seem like I'm threatened by that painful memory. I don't want to be obsessing about that. This is too much. And the, it, the strategy might appear like, oh, I should resist this memory from showing up right now. But with more and more practice, more and more confidence, the way wisdom responds is, oh yeah, this memory showing up. Oh yeah, there's a lot of unfinished business. This is painful. This, these emotions that are moving now, maybe it's okay. Maybe the most skillful way is to allow whatever this is to be what it is, knowing that it's not done. It's, it's going to keep changing. And so this, these feelings that have been exposed because this memory has come to mind, they'll be there for a while. But if I understand that it's like this and that this changes, then we give permission for things to keep moving. 
and see what's next. Like the, what, what might be next is a lot of compassion. Oh, honey, this is an unattended wound you have here. And I care about that. So it might be initial, this initial feeling of exposure and like I'm betrayed by my own memories and here it is and I don't want to feel it. And then the next few moments later, just a, a very healing and beautiful compassion. Oh, honey, it isn't easy being a human being. This is what it feels like sometimes. And then a few minutes later, the mind might be reflecting on something quite ordinary, like it's a little cool in this room, or, oh yeah, this is, I think I'll have this for lunch today. You know, and then, oh yeah, now it's like this. So this, this um, composure, this balance, this evenness, this fearlessness, this relaxation with uncertainty, anicca is the Pali word for uncertainty, unreliability, impermanence, right? So we can, you know, there are many ways to sort of hold and understand our practice. And one is this deepening, uh, powerful capacity to be even, to be relaxed, to be open, curious, in what is essentially uncertain, unreliable, and ungovernable, changing. So this composure with impermanence. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you can imagine this can easily be some stance, like, okay, I got it, this is what Buddhism is about, being composed with impermanence. And then we can, like a good actor, you know, pretend to be composed with impermanence. So if something terrible happens in our life or with a friend, we sort of have a script. We know we're supposed to be composed and look balanced and look okay. And so we repress, hide from, cover up anything that looks like being a real human being and being touched and feeling the intensity of being alive because we have this idea this concept that we believe in that the idea is to be composed with impermanence. Uh, one of my teachers, I might have mentioned this recently, but Michelle McDonald, this um, long-time teacher at IMS, and she teaches a lot in Hawaii. And um, she once said in the middle of a longer retreat, a three-month retreat toward the end of it, in one of her talks, something like, you know what? You know what's really good about being able to do a long retreat is learning to drop some of our false equanimity. And that's, you know, we could say that's a lot about becoming a more real um, person, somebody who's comfortable in their skin, and in particular, comfortable not having to be perfect, not having to look perfect, maybe is a better way to say it, not needing to fit some ideal of perfection. This capacity we can develop with practice of dropping false equanimity, like I'm somebody who's got my S-H-I-T together, <laughs> you know, that that's a, that's a lot of what, because we're so impressed when we run into people who seem to have their stuff together, 
you know, oh, I want to be one of those people who, like it is, it's said in some of the Buddhist texts, you know, I am even, even among, uh, you know, the eight worldly winds that come and blast me. Nothing moves me. So we can use, we can misunderstand these similes of being like a solid rock that remains untouched. Um, yeah, so there's there are all these shadows when we hear about composure with uncertainty. And I mentioned in the day-long retreat yesterday this really useful conversation when my partner and the co-founder, co-founder of Common Ground and one of the teachers here. And I had, um, we were just chatting together, maybe Friday or Thursday, about ignorance. And, uh, you know, it's relatively easy for us to see ignorance in other people, like how they're caught, what they're not seeing. But one of the great fruits of our Dharma practice is realizing that we can never honestly separate ourselves from the ignorance that we see out there. And that one of the telltale signs of deepening practice is how whenever we rightly notice that, you know, somebody is sort of getting thrown around by the messiness of life and acting out, acting in unskillful ways, causing harm to themselves and others, one of the real uh, telltale signs of the deepening of practice is, and this is where compassion comes from, is we see that person's exposure and that person being somehow thrown around and confused and therefore acting in unskillful, unhelpful ways. We see how that's exactly what's happening to me. Maybe not in the same way in this moment, but we always include ourselves so think about this when you next time you read the news and you read about somebody who you think is doing something really unjust, really ignorant, causing harm. Like, do we separate ourselves from that ignorance that we're noticing in the world? Or do we include ourselves? And that's why these uh, the Buddhist teachings on impermanence and dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature are so important because these underlying characteristics include everything. And we're never apart from the truth of change, the truth of unreliableness, ungovernableness, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. So part of our path of awakening is like, I know it seems sort of counter because we have this... Um, idea of spiritual progress, spiritual development as a movement towards purity and perfection. But it might be more useful to uh, understand spiritual insight and spiritual the, the deepening of spiritual practice as a more honest acknowledgement of the truth of our conditioning, our conditioning as an individual, a so-called individual, in our conditioning as a, as a group of humans and even more generally, just being part of this, the wildness of causes and conditions, which really includes everything. 
Nothing is apart. And this is what we initially do with impermanence and thinking about composure with impermanence. We, th we continue to sense of myself as I'm this entity who's learning to be composed with how wild and unreliable and like, okay, so if I'm going to be exposed to what's uncertain, I have to be really solid. And therefore, yeah, life will change, things will come and go, some of that will be really unpleasant, some of that maybe hopefully will be pleasant, but I'm going to be this rock that remains unmoved. So to really um, take advantage of the Buddhist teachings that it's not just what's external that is subject to change, but anything, any way we're positioning ourselves is also characterized by that same quality of change and uncertainty, unreliability, ungovernable, unsatisfactory, and not self. One of the mantras, I guess you could call it, that Ajahn Sumedho, a really powerful teacher in our early Buddhist tradition here, we used to say a lot is everything arises and passes and is not self. Everything comes and goes and is impersonal. And that's just like a way of perceiving. And and the question is, it's really a practical question, how does that affect my way of participating, my way of showing up in life, when I keep remembering that everything comes and goes and is not self. So when my defensiveness is triggered, or when my fear or anxiety is triggered, or when my desire and wanting is triggered, I say, oh, that wanting comes and goes and is not self. Oh, that defensiveness comes and goes according to causes and conditions and is actually not that personal. Oh, this anxiety comes and goes depending on causes and conditions and it's not so personal. So then I don't, I'm less dependent on becoming this idea of a perfect mark, right? I'm learning to make peace with my conditioned personality. I see somebody mentioned, you know, resonates with my experience of racism. And I think this is a really good example, regardless of our cultural location, you know, our racial identity. You know, we have to, we have to sort of learn that this is you know, race is something constructed, but that construction of race, being white in my case, it is as real as anything is real. It's constructed, but it's real in the sense that it needs to be seen, it needs to be experienced. The way this heart-mind has been conditioned around race, around gender, or any of these spectrums of difference around class, right, able-bodiedness or not, Whatever the conditioning forces of our life, we have to learn to see them as something that comes and goes and is not self. But this isn't a way of repressing. It's actually a way of getting close because it's the truth. It is something that gets triggered in different ways. That activation of our racial conditioning or our gender conditioning or whatever it might be. It gets activated by just our rubbing and scrubbing and interactions with everything else. And there it is. And are we willing to acknowledge, yeah, this is something that comes and goes. And it's not really that personal. And it's 
that understanding that actually allows me to dance with it skillfully because I'm not misunderstanding it as me or mine as something permanent that needs to then be defended or needs to be even this idea that I got to get rid of it arises from a misunderstanding. A more nuanced and appropriate statement might be, I need to know how to work with this. I need to know how to relate to this. I need to know how to include this because it's part of what's moving here. Whether I want it to be here or not, it's what's moving here. And these identities that we have, you know, they have a place. Like we often we we use identities to clarify what's moving, but we don't want to mistake any of our identities that we have found useful for clarifying what's moving, you know, in our interactions inside, outside, with something that is fixed as some kind of permanent truth. So this is really our um, our teacher, this, you know, it's really this beautiful, powerful intersection. I hope you forgive me, but, you know, our normal way of relating, we'd call in Buddhist terms, wrong view, because it's really, um, it's really uh, controlled by this conviction in self as a permanent entity. But there's something that causes that wrong idea of separate, fixed self to fall apart. And that's when wrong view, self-view, the conviction about a permanent, separate self, dances with the reality of impermanence. So as an ordinary person, mostly kind of caught up in self-view, right? that's how the Buddha tells us to begin, we acknowledge that we have this momentum, this habit of selfing, this self-centeredness. This is just comes with being an ordinary human being. And so the Buddhist path is then, okay, take that self-centeredness, those deep, seemingly unending habits to self <laughs> to, in a, this fixed way, and start becoming, train yourself to be intimate, to be curious, about the reality of change and uncertainty and the unreliable, ungovernableness of everything. Because when wrong view, self-view dances, gets to know, relaxes with change and impermanence and unreliableness, then self-view is forever, at least it begins to be changed in a way that tends not to go backwards, right? Because the more we make friends with change, with anicca, impermanence, the re which is just dhamma, the way it is, the more we get interested in change and the unreliableness and the uncertainty, the more our selfing, the view of self as a separate permanent entity, changes. Because it doesn't align with the reality of change. Initially, it makes us more neurotic because as I'm more honest about change, this feels more threatened, self feels more threatened. So I, we all double down on self, right? And you see this kind of in our wider culture, you know, when things 
get intense and there's a lot more uncertainty moving, then you see people getting more tight around self, around their convictions, their opinions, their identities. People start to misuse their identities in the sense of clinging to them as something more than what identities can ever be, right? And that that's kind of what we see. But if we keep hanging in there, this is an untenable position because it's so painful. Clinging to what actually isn't worthy of clinging to isn't really something that can be clung to because it's a construction. Eventually the whole thing falls apart. But there can be this tension, or I should say there often is this tension. And this also happens in Dharma practice, on longer retreats or over years of practices, we really train our heart to be interested in these three characteristics that the Buddha talks about, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the truth or the underlying reality of change, the unsatisfactoriness because of how fluid and ungraspable everything is. The ego can't find satisfaction. So that's the dukkha, the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness and the impersonal nature, anatta. It, whatever we look at, whatever we open to, when we see with some clarity, we see it's a natural process, a very interdependent unfolding of causes and conditions. We don't see ever, ever that experience refers back to a somebody in that permanent sense. We just don't find that when we open to life with some clarity. We just see changing processes, interdependent processes playing themselves out lawfully. We always see that same thing. And it's beautiful in that way and trustworthy in that way. As I was reflecting on this talk today, I was reminded of a very moving passage. I'm sure some of you have heard it before. The Kunda Sutta and the Sutta Napata, this collection of teachings from the Buddha. And it's the time when um, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, and the Buddha get word that Sariputta had passed away. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's chief disciples, along with Moggallana. And he wasn't around the Buddha when he died and, you know, said that he had his sort of ordinary death of being in pain and severely ill before he passed away. And then his attendant, a novice monk, brought his robe and bowls, um, eating bowls, to where the Buddha stayed, traveled that distance, showed up, told Ananda, and then Ananda brought him. Ananda was, is, or was at the time, the Buddha's attendant, and so brought Kunda, this novice, to the Buddha to tell him the story of Sariputta's passing. And the first thing Ananda says to the Buddha when reporting this, Venerable Sir, Venerable Sariputta has attained total unbinding. So this is the Buddhist way of saying when a, an awakened being has died, then there, this is a complete, final unbinding of what we saw as that person. The body is falling apart. And even that mind stream that that person had, there's no longer any intention 
to become another person. So I don't want to go into that aspect of impermanence right now. But so then the point I wanted to make the, is just how Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, was willing to be so real here. Because he says then, um, it was as if my body were drugged. I lost my bearings. Things weren't clear to me on hearing that Venerable Sariputta had died, had passed away. Because Sariputta was a, an important teacher to Ananda, somebody he had really benefited from and maybe had grown dependent on. So when he heard the news that he died, it was shocking, right? Well, this is good for us. Now here's somebody evidently very well practiced and had the good fortune to be the attendant of the Buddha and still this ordinary truth of an older person dying because Sariputta was older than the Buddha so it's, you know, people die all the time. I'm sure that had occurred to Ananda that his one of his favorite teachers would eventually pass away but still the mind was shocked as if drugged, right? Things weren't clear to me. I lost my bearings, right? It's like this, oh my God. I knew it was possible, but I guess I hadn't really integrated the truth of change. And so the the Buddha is really helping Ananda. So the, the first thing the Buddha says to him, you know, I'm just paraphrasing, but, well, Ananda, when Sariputta died, did he take this path of awakening with him? Right? Did he take this, how powerful it is to cultivate sila, this deep resolve around not causing harm to other living beings? Right. So this is the ethical practice that we undertake. Did he take the teachings and the practices around non-harming with him? And Ananda says, no. Well, did he take the teachings and practices and this capacity we have to stabilize present moment awareness, samadhi. Did he take that with him? And Ananda said, no. Well, did he take wisdom, this capacity we all have to see things just as they are, changing, unsatisfactory, not worthy of grasping, not really personal. Did he take that underlying truth away when he died? And Ananda said, no, he didn't take it. And then, but Ananda wasn't over, right? <laughs> he was still feeling his grief. And because the pain of loss is painful. I mean, I know that sounds sort of redundant, but it's, it's really important that the Buddhist teachings and our practice ju doesn't change the fact that loss hurts. Loss hurts. And Ananda was feeling that. And so, but he didn't know how to be with the pain of loss. So he, he tried to rationalize it. And he told, well, he was such an important teacher to me and to so many people. And so then the Buddha said, well, yeah, it's like there's a big tree and one of the main branches has fallen, crashed to the ground. But there's still a big tree. And so this is a simile the Buddha used at that time when talking to Ananda and really helping him deal with his inability to be with the pain of loss. He said, yeah, it's like a big branch has fallen, but the tree remains. There are still these teachings. There are still people practicing these teachings. 
there are still people realizing what these teachings point to, right? Realizing this presence, this mindful presence, this capacity to be intimate and to be um, skillful, to be loving and compassionate in the face of change, in the face of the uncertainty of life, the exposure to change, to what comes and goes. Has that been taken away, right? So he helped Ananda realize that, yeah, something big has happened. There was a big branch, you know, and a lot of life depended on that branch, and that branch has changed. It's gone away. It's crashed to the earth. But there are other branches. This path of awakening is still quite alive. People are practicing and benefiting and this is, it's, for us, you know, it's a real important thing that, because it's easy for us to complain about our teachers, our teaching institutions, and just generally the supports in our life. And basically we put off doing what we can do in life to become a wiser and kinder human being because nothing is perfect. But it doesn't have to be perfect, it just needs to be good enough to walk this path. You know, that is there something we can do with our heart, with our minds, to take the next step along the way. And then at the end of this discussion, the Buddha's having with Ananda, he gives a very famous, what has since become a very famous little teaching here. But Ananda, haven't I already taught you the state of growing different with regard to all things dear and appealing? the state of becoming separate, the state of becoming otherwise. Right. So this we should reflect right now, because all of us, right, we have our things that are very dear to us. And the Buddha said, haven't I told all of you that whatever is dear, you should be reflecting, you should be cultivating the per- perception that it will become otherwise doesn't mean we want it to become otherwise, those things that are dear to us. So it's like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if she was a real powerful inspiration for you, we should have been cultivating the perception it's just a matter of time before she dies. Whatever it is we're dependent on, we should be cultivating the perception it won't always be this way. Things will change. I don't know when, I don't know how, but things will change. My health will eventually fall away. My life will eventually end. All that is good will change. Same with all that is bad. But we want to sort of bring to the surface any unconscious dependencies where we're imagining that I can't live this life without this being certain. We really want to come into alignment with the reality of uncertainty. And then a little later, the Buddha says, Therefore, Ananda, each of you should remain with yourself as an island, yourself as a refuge, without anything else as a refuge. Remain with the Dhamma as an island, the Dhamma as your refuge, without anything else as a refuge. So here, the self, he's not talking about self-view. He's talking about this present moment reality, this 
activity of the body and mind, the Dhamma of that, the teachings really pointing us, oh yeah, this is what I have. We have our life right now, which and this life we have right now is very alive with change. That is its very nature. How does one remain with the Dhamma as an island, the Dhamma as one's refuge, without anything else as a refuge? There is a case where <coughs> a practitioner remains wisely aware of the body in and of itself. The, our feelings, feeling tone in and of itself, the mind, mental qualities in and of themselves, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. This is how a practitioner remains with one's life, with the Dhamma, as an island, as one's refuge, without anything else as a refuge. So, and this is very close to the Buddha's own passing. I'm not sure how many years, but uh, it's in the same vicinity of time. And so this is like a powerful teaching, not just Ananda, but these teachings are really meant for all of us. Right? Ananda was just the one who recorded them. And so this is what we get to take with us today. Just this curiosity about what we consciously and unconsciously justify being dependent on, and to realize that it can, it will become otherwise. We don't know when, we don't know how. So what is our refuge? Well, I have this right now, this very dynamic changing thing I call my life. I have this teacher of impermanence, this teacher that nothing is worthy of grasping. It's always whatever I grasp, whatever I try to turn into solid ground is unsatisfactory, whether it's a relationship or a good set or whatever. And everything is impersonal. So this Dhamma, this reality, this teacher, this is our refuge. And when we turn to that, we actually find, you know, that composure, that lightness, and that really that, that capacity to be free. This taste of unbinding a heart that's not wrongly bound to something that's not dependable. That's really the birthplace of anxiety when I'm clinging to something not worthy of being clung to, then my whole existential situation is insecure. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.